Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. How's everybody doing? Welcome to Crossroads this morning. We are in the last week of this series that we're calling the Church of Influence. I was reading an article, this is a couple years ago, and it stuck out to me because I'd never thought about this before. But this journalist had gone to several conferences and talked about the conference culture. And what he did was... He went to, at least two that I remember, he went to a Mary Kay conference, and he went to a math conference. They have those, worlds of fun. He went to a math conference, and he talked about just the nature of these conferences, and what was interesting is he said, when you go to these conferences, it is a culture all of its own, because so far in life, these, these people that have these different nuances or different segments of their personality, they go to these conferences, and they feel fully free to be all them they can be under that guy of whatever's defining them. So he said, I went to the Mary Kay conference and there was so much makeup. There was so much because these women, maybe men, felt like they could for the first time put all the makeup they really wanted on and nobody would judge them. He said, I went to this math conference and the math jokes, oh my, I didn't get any of them, but I guess they made certain people laugh, you know? He said, this is what conferences do is they bring to the forefront those things that we keep in the rear view because we can now feel like they're normalized. Here's my point is that sometimes I think we do this as a church. I, I went to Moody Bible Institute, which is like a four-year Bible conference, yay Jesus, and it's good, but I would spend nights arguing some minute point of theology with people on my floor, and I loved it. I really enjoy arguing. And, and I would spend all night long talking about a word or two or three, and we'd have these same arguments over and over, and this is in love arguments, you know, over and over and over again. And we'd get so nuanced and so detailed that sometimes we'd forget the bigger story of why we're there. And make no mistake about it, I think that's where those things should happen is on seminary, but sometimes it gets really distant from why we're called the seminary in the first place. For the last three weeks, we've talked about the influence of the local church. We've talked about different ways, kind of nuanced ways, that the church should be influencing the people that call themselves the body of believers. In a letter written to a people that Paul had never met gathering in a city that was dying, he says, hey, here's first and foremost, be influenced every time you gather by the message of grace. Knowing that you are saints and I'm an apostle, not because we're awesome, because Jesus is awesome. Know that grace drives your meetings together. And then he says, and also because you're in a dying city and I'm in prison, I still take joy and I'm thankful for you because we get to gather together and we get to call the same Lord, Lord. And whether I know you or not, that, that brings in me thankfulness. So every time you come together, whether you look around and see reasons to or not, every time you come together, know that when we see different expressions of people worshiping our God as we drive home today and drive past 37 churches in the mile and a half we go to, be thankful for them because that's a sign of God's faithfulness to us. And then we said, well, one of the things he prayed for in verses 9 through 12 that we walked through last week was the idea that he, he prays for them to grow up. So he says, we're going to take grace seriously and be influenced by it. We're going to be thankful for one another. And then also my prayer for you, the influence you should be having on one another is we call each other into maturity because as we grow up in Christ, people see more of Christ, go and do if Christ is good. 
And you have these influences, these nuanced influences that the church should have as we gather together. Today is not nuanced at all. Today is big picture Sunday. It's one of the... The, the paramount verses in Colossians, you've probably heard it before. We pick it up in verse 12 and go through 14. It says, giving thanks to God the Father, that's where we left it last week, who has qualified you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son. He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What an amazing two and a half verse arc there. So today what I want to do I just want to tell the story of the gospel, the influence of the gospel. And here's the deal. I know coming into this that I'm guessing 90-ish percent of us have probably heard the story of the gospel before. I'm guessing if somebody asked you to lay down what the gospel is, I'm hoping you could answer that question. Here's what I think anyway, even if you know the story, it's good to tell it again and again and again. The older I get, and I can say that I'm almost 36, the older I get, um, the more I want to argue less and the more I look forward to the points and times when I get together with friends and family and I know we're going to tell the same stories and I know we're going to laugh at the same things and I look forward to those beautiful moments because it reminds us who we are as the family of God. Today's text is just the unabashed gospel and if you've heard it before, good, you're going to hear it again. If you haven't heard it before, awesome. Today's a good day for you. And as we read the text and talk about Jesus, we're going to have a conversation about what he did. Spurgeon as Charles Spurgeon has a great first name, and he's also a um, notable preacher from the 1900s, one, one of the best. And he would talk about the gospel, and he'd say, when you talk about salvation or what Jesus did, you have to answer three questions, and we're going to use those to guide our time today. So the first question you have to answer is, what are we saved from? The second question you have to answer is, what are we saved by? And the third question you have to answer is, what are we saved to? So today, we're going to use that as a format, and we're going to dive into verses 12 through 14, and we're also going to be in verse 21 to 23, because that gives a little more detail to what he's talking about in 12 to 14. And we're going to answer these three questions. What do we say from, what do we say by, and what do we save to? As we tell the story of the gospel this morning, because it's why we're here in the first place. But before we do that, we're going to do what we do at Crossroads on Sunday mornings. We're going to open in prayer because we have two goals. One is that you guys, that we together might know God. And when we say know God, we mean dive into the depth of his character that we see revealed in the scripture, fully knowing that we will never fully get to a full understanding of who God is because he's bigger than us combined and that's beautiful and wise worthy of our worship. But knowing God fully doesn't mean we just know the answers to Jesus' jeopardy. It means that we actually allow what we know about God to infiltrate and influence our daily lives. And so we pray that we just don't know God, but we experience his goodness because we know of his goodness. And so we're going to take some time this morning and just pray. And I'm going to ask that you pray silently and just ask the Spirit of God, the person of God, active as followers of Jesus in this space and place, that he just shapes your soul this morning, that we look more like Jesus when we leave this place. And I'm going to ask that you pray for me that, you know, I do a good job and don't embarrass the kingdom. So let's pray together. God, I'm so thankful that I get to get up here this morning and tell the best story that's ever been told, a story of a God who loves and didn't give up on the world. I'm thankful that we can gather together and and hear maybe some of the same points that we've heard before, but hopefully it adds to the depth of our relationship and gratitude in our relationship with you. I pray this morning... um, Holy Spirit, that you remind us of the goodness of the gospel. The the big picture perspective of what Jesus came and did and God is doing through what Jesus did. So just pray that you remind us and and give us joy and gratitude this morning. If you're comfortable, I'd ask that you take a couple seconds and just pray that the Spirit of God might do work in your spirit this morning.
I'm going to ask that you take a couple seconds and pray for me, <clears throat> that I might do a good job in t- telling the story of the gospel as we see it in the scripture. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. We're in it together, Colossians 1. If you've got a Bible, open it up. We're going to put some stuff on the screen too. It starts off by saying he's qualified you to share in the saint's inheritance in the light. He delivered us from the power of darkness. And what we see at the very beginning, it says that he qualified us to share in the light, delivered us from the power of darkness so that we might be transferred. And here's what we see at the very beginning. If we're going to ask the question, what do we say from, we see this interplay of light and darkness. And so where I want to start is a little more abstract, but I want to start with this this interplay, this juxtaposition, if you will, between light and darkness. Because this isn't the first time we see it in Scripture. We see it all throughout. And really, outside of the Scriptures, too, in the Greco-Roman world, it was kind of a moralistic dualism that existed when they talked about light and darkness, good actions, bad actions, but what the Bible does is, is it really paints a broader picture of, of light and darkness. And it, it does it from the very beginning. In Genesis 1, it's the creation account of all the things that we see. It says in Genesis 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was without shape and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the watery deep. When it says darkness was over the surface of the watery deep there, it doesn't mean there that it was just dark outside. It doesn't mean Lake Louisville in a new moon. That's not what it's talking about. When it says darkness there, that word darkness implies chaos. When it says that darkness was over the surface of the water deep, it's saying that there was no order to creation because the point of Genesis 1 is that God brings good ordered creation out of something unordered. It says he brings creation that is good from chaos. And so it starts by juxtaposing this is what was and then we're going to see God step in. But it begins by saying there was emptiness, void, nothingness, chaos. So the first thing we see when we talk about darkness is literally it's the chaoticness that comes from not knowing the good ordered influence of God. But it doesn't stop there in Proverbs 2. It says, those who forsake the path of uprightness, they walk in the ways of darkness. So we see not only is darkness symbolizing a chaoticness of a lack of God's good order, it's also literally what we talked about, a moral degradation. It goes even farther in Matthew 6. It says, when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is, it pushes it farther. And it doesn't just say darkness is lying or cheating or stealing or bad behavior. It says literally darkness leads to depravity, holistic depravity. And then it keeps going in Matthew 8. And it says darkness isn't just depravity, it's judgment. It says, but many Israelites, this is Jesus talking, those for whom the kingdom was prepared will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So really, what we see when we look at the biblical idea of darkness is not just the lights have been turned off. It's a chaotic, unordered depravity. Scott McKnight in his commentary on Colossians 11, he says that he says, darkness is the deep, cosmic, demonic, personal realities capturing structures and society and people in this world systemically to thwart the good plan of God. That's what darkness is. It's more than just I made a bad decision or I had a bad Monday. It is a systemic problem that fights against God's good. Darkness then is the depravity and disarray felt from distancing from God's ways and influence. It's darkness. So we're asking the question, 
What did God save us from? We start with, well, clearly darkness. And darkness is the lack of God's order and influence in our world. But then he breaks into that. Because darkness is always juxtaposed in the scripture by light. He says, if you want to go back to Genesis, where this whole thing began, he said, into the darkness, God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And then you get this depiction of light throughout the Old and New Testaments that's juxtaposed to what darkness stood for. The first thing was that we see light call people out of darkness. It's active in Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. We see that light leads God's people. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We see that the light, and this is a positive one, the light always wins. Like light, light beats back darkness. It's John 1, 4 through 5. In him was life, and the, light, um, and the life was the light of mankind. And the light shines on the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Essentially what the scripture's doing is it's saying darkness is the depravity that comes from distancing yourself from God, but light is a reflection of the very character of God himself. Jesus even says at one point in John 8, I am the light of the world or follows me will not walk in darkness but have the light of light. It says in 1 John 1, 5, this is my favorite. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So light is the influence and goodness of God displayed. So we have these two juxtaposed forces. Okay, so here's what I wanna do. I wanna get a little more abstract this morning and I wanna ask a deeper question. So we can all get on board with darkness is bad things. We can all get on board with darkness is depravity and disorder that comes from not knowing God's influence. We've used the word sin to describe that in the church for millennia. We we can all get on board with darkness, bad, light, good. Here's my question I want to ask. If God saved us from darkness and the scriptures just say that God is lighted in him, there is no darkness. Where did it come from? Where did the darkness come from in the first place if God is good and God is light? I want to go there a little bit because I think it's really important in identifying cause. And so Ravi Zacharias is a Christian writer and speaker and smarter guy than me. And he um, talks a lot about kind of philosophic ideas. And I love what he says about the idea of darkness. He has a response to this question that's really good. When people ask him, well, why does the even idea of darkness exist at all if, if God is all good? Where did that option come from if God is all good and God created the whole world good? He, he lays out four scenarios and it leads us to believe in one. And I really like what he says. He says, so if you're God, you have four options. And one is that you could have just not created at all. You could have just, just not created no good, no evil, only good because you're the only thing that exists in perpetuity and it's good and beautiful and fully, um, fully worthy of all the things that God is worthy of. Two is when God created, he could have created only good things. He could have created without the choice for darkness, if you will. He could have created and said, I'm not going to give anything or anyone or any being the choice to choose anything bad. I'm only creating good. Three, he said God could have created and only given the choice of bad. He could have created only awful things and given no choice of good. And four, he could have created with a choice between light and darkness for the created beings. Now here's the deal. Let's go back through those. Talk about three of the four don't make sense. One, if God didn't create at all, it goes against his character. We've talked about it at length, but the character of God, why he created in the first place, and it gives us insight into why we exist, is because we are supposed to magnify and bring glory to the name of God, because it's seen in Genesis 1, it's seen in Abraham, it's seen in Israel, it's seen in the church, and Jesus and Paul and Peter and us. 
God created because always God is overflowing his goodness under the canvas of things around him, spaces and places. That's why he looked at Adam, the first created being, and said, I have been so good to you. Show everything around you my goodness through how you treat them. It's a model of how we're supposed to do life. And so we talked about the idea that God's goodness always overflows. And so if God didn't create, then his goodness would not overflow. It goes against his character as a sharer, as an overflower of goodness. God creates because it's an expression of how generous he is. So two, if God created only good things, if God created only the choice for good, there wouldn't be a choice at all. And here's the problem with that, is God symbolizes and God is and defines love, and there cannot be love if there is not choice. There can't be love if there isn't choice. If you're telling me that I don't have a choice, that I have to choose this, and there can't be actual, genuine love because I play no part in that. I'm just a robot. Three, if God created only evil, that's impossible because he doesn't know and is not evil and can't create evil things. The scripture says it here. It says it in James 1. So it leaves us with the last option. That when God created, he had to create with a choice because it's the only place in space in which love actually exists. And so when God created, when he created, out of an overflow of his love came our ability to choose God or not choose God. Darkness was an option. Now, if you're asking me, and this is the follow-up question to that, if we know that darkness, the option of sin, the option of darkness, the option of injustice exists because love exists and God creates as an overflow of love under the canvas of creation, if you're asking then, how did all good things that God created become evil? If God is only good, where did evil come from? I'd respond with a way that's largely attributed to Albert Einstein. And I don't know if he actually said this or not, but Somebody asked him this question years and years ago. I saw um, a couple different articles on it. Um, and, and he basically says, well, let's talk about what darkness is in the first place. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that would have been a really cool thing on cue. You know, if I say darkness is gets dimmer. Uh, let's talk about what darkness is in the first place. And so sometimes we think that like darkness and light are juxtaposed independent forces. The darkness is just as powerful as the force is light, but it's not because light always wins. And so what he's going to say is, okay, let, let's talk about how we define certain things. So he says, define cold. Cold is not in and of itself an independent force. Literally, cold is defined as the absence of the kinetic energy that makes heat. Cold exists because heat isn't present. Same thing with actual darkness, like what we just kind of sort of experienced. Darkness exists because light is not present. Where light exists, it always beats darkness. So what he would say and what I believe is where did darkness come from? It comes from the fact that people choose not to live into the good ways of God. It's the absence of God's good influence. It's not created by God, nor is it God's fault. And so what we see is that God created only good things. And the problem is he created good, ordered things. And too much of a good thing is no longer a good thing. And what happens when we take God's creation and we misvalue or misappropriate good is we don't get good back. Romans 121 talks about it, or 125 talks about it and says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So too much of a good thing turns into not a good thing. And I know that because I've been to a buffet, everybody, you know? I've been to Fogo de Chao. I remember the first time I went, I was in college. It was a graduation thing me and two buddies did, and we wanted to go for a long time. We were poor college students. We saved up the $45 it took to get the lunch buffet there because, you know, it was cheaper. And we went, and we were so excited. Like, I didn't eat for a couple hours beforehand back then. You know, it was a big deal. Um, and we played this game all meal long where, I don't know if you've been, but they have all these, all these meats. They have this salad bar that's amazing. Don't waste your time. From a cost-benefit standpoint, you're just throwing money out the window. Play the lottery. Wait for the meats. 
And so we played this game where we'd start ordering some, and then they have these cards, green and red. And if it's green, they bring you the meats. If it's red, they just walk right by. And so we did this thing where we would try to subtly turn our friends over green. And if, if they didn't notice it, and somebody stopped by because they saw the green thing flipped over, you had to eat whatever they gave you. And we kept doing this for like two hours, right? Point is, at the, at the end of it, we were so full, all of us got sick that night. Like, all of us. I never thought in my life that too much steak was bad, right? I now know. And, and the point there is simply, God made all good things, gave all good things, but when we misvalue God's good thing, we create bad things. Drink too much water, it'll hurt you. God created with good order. That's important to keep in mind, too, is when we misvalue God's good things. So I know this, and and I think we all do, is that when you put too much emphasis on something that's not supposed to be the center of your life, bad things happen. If you have a kid, and they become the most important thing in your world, then your marriage suffers, and the best thing for a healthy kid is a healthy marriage. I think we see that when culturally and societally we value things that aren't necessarily bad, but when we value them above all the other goods, we see detrimental effects. Augustine talks about it and says, if you make any love other than God your best love, it increases your misery. And so what we see when we talk about darkness, when we talk about what God is saving us from, it begins with the fact that I don't, I don't think God created darkness, nor do I think he's responsible for it. I think it's a byproduct of choice because God is love and I think we misvalued and appropriated God's good that led to bad things. Less of God's influence in our world. G.K. Chesterton is another preacher from the 1900s. He's a traveler and I preach a lot. And at one point, I think the New York Times wrote him and asked him <clears throat> um, to answer a question somebody sent into the newspaper. And the question was, what's wrong with the world? That was it. They wrote him and said, can you answer this question, what's wrong with the world? I'm like, man, that is a huge question. Sometimes as a pastor, people will ask me really deep, broad theological truths in a text message. And I want to be like, seriously? <laughs> like, I, I had classes on this for years in seminary. Let me give it to you 160 characters. I know that's Twitter, not text. I was making a joke, okay? Um, but he wrote back, and I love his response. What's wrong with the world? He wrote, dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, GK. Right? This, this profound expression that we admit there's darkness in the world, but we also understand where it came from. Because if we're going to talk about what God saved us from, we have to know where it began. We have to understand that God's not culpable of the darkness that we see. And that's really important. Because if I believe God's culpable, I believe he's no longer all good. <laughs> and I trust that he is. I need him to be. And so we begin with this idea of what did God save us from? He saved us from all the ways that we define darkness all the ways that we run from God, all the ways that we choose not to let the good influence of God fully permeate and saturate our lives and societies and cultures and, and world. And we feel the weight and the consequences of, of that effect. And so it goes on in Colossians 3 that he transferred us out of darkness into the kingdom of the Son in, in whom he loves, which we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you go to Colossians 1.22, it, it expands on this principle a bit and says, but now he has reconciled you, Jesus, by his physical body through death to present you holy, blemish-free or without blemish and blameless before God. There's really three elements to this next section, which is this is what we were saved from, so how did he do it? How he did it was through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And there's really three elements in our scriptures here. We see the word forgiveness. We see the word in the middle there in 122. He's reconciled through his physical body. And then we see the word reconciled or redeemed. I think as a 
Western culture, we do really, really well with the idea of forgiveness. I think forgiveness is easier for us. I think the most quoted verse in our society is John 3.16, for a reason, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's the simple idea that God chose to step first. Romans 5 talks about it. He loved you before you loved him back. That's God stepping into forgiveness. We celebrate stories of forgiveness. It's why the Amber Geiger, Botham John story blew up because his brother got up there and said, I'm gonna choose to forgive you. And that's his choice. It's not reciprocated by the effects of this other woman in that case or in your life or mine. He said, I'm gonna choose forgiveness. And forgiveness is just taking a step towards somebody that's hurt you. He said, I'm gonna choose forgiveness. And as a society, we love forgiveness. It's something that we tout as good and great, and it is. But when the Bible talks about forgiveness, it says that God moved first towards you and forgave your sins, but that's not the end of the story of forgiveness, and it's not the end of how we define love. When the Bible talks about forgiveness, it always makes sure to show us and tell us that the forgiveness that we experience through God stepping towards us came at a cost. Came at a cost. And we're really good with forgiveness. We're not so good with the other side of that coin, which is justice. You know? We go to long extents to hide anything that costs life or that has blood in it. And and we've been made new through the blood of Jesus. There's this idea that love is good and sometimes justice is not the same thing or as good as love. And I think when the scripture talks about love fully, I think one side of the coin is forgiveness and the other side of the coin is justice. I think they go hand in hand. And I need that to be true because I need God to want to punish unjust things because he says he's good. And if we upplay forgiveness and downplay justice, what we do is we make light of injustice everywhere. Tim Keller talked about it and said, as some have pointed out, you have, had, you have to have had a pretty comfortable life without any experience of oppression and injustice yourself to not want a God who punishes sin. Eddie Pink said, how could he, God, who delights only in that which is pure and lovely, not loathe and hate that which is impure and vile? I remember the first time, the first time I remember getting really, really angry at injustice. Um, I actually was working here. I'd been here for a couple months and I took a trip to Haiti. I was single and I taught a marriage conference and (laughs) actually taught the single people while other people taught the marriage conference. And uh, I'd never been to some place that poor. I'd been to poor places. I'd lived in Guatemala. I'd I'd done some things. I'd served in the inner cities in San Francisco and Chicago and, but I'd never been to that kind of poverty. I'd never been to places where it didn't matter how hard you tried, you weren't getting out of it. I remember showing up and you see these little kids with distended bellies and rust-colored hair because they were malnourished. I remember eating our first meal there that night, and they served goat. And I didn't really like it that much, but I ate it anyway. And they told us at the end of that meal that what they fed us, our team, who was well-fed Americans, was more than the village ate in a week. I remember thinking, this isn't fair. And I left that place, and a couple months later, they had one of the biggest earthquakes we've seen in a long, long time. And I thought to myself, that's not fair, and I got mad. And here's my point. When we see injustice, we should get mad. That's what God does. I I need God to get mad at injustice because that's what love looks like. If I love my kid and you're unjust to my kid, I'm gonna get mad at you and that's a good thing. The bad thing is when I try to to take revenge because it's God's job, not mine. And so what the scriptures does in the story of what we're saved from and how we're saved, it paints this picture that God doesn't just let injustice or darkness skate. 
He doesn't just let it go. And this is the side of the coin that we don't tell that often. There's a word in the Old Testament text that's referenced in the New Testament. It's called propitiation. It has to deal with the wrath of God. So the wrath of God is a settled opposition of hatred of that which is destroying what we love. He made good creation. Things are tearing it down and destroying it. Things are hurting the people and the spaces and the places that he loved. And he gets angry at that and he should. So this idea that runs through the Old Testament of propitiation and propitiation essentially is is people that paid a price to assuage the wrath of a God. Saying that injustice happened and something's got to make this injustice right because if I don't stand up for injustice, I don't know if I'm good, if I'm really truly loving. Let me paint a picture of my night last night. My wife had a dinner that she went to and she left me with my child for a couple hours, felt like days, and it was dinner time. And we're doing this thing right now where we're trying to figure out what our kid likes to eat. And then she eats something and we buy a bunch of it and then she doesn't like it anymore because she knows that I spent money. And so last night, I, um, I'm trying to get my kid to eat dinner. And man, we went through like all the things in our fridge. There was some beef that we gave her that we made the night before. There were um, different vegetables that we made her. I made her a quesadilla and gave that to her. We went through some Cheerios and we went through some turkey meat and we went through some cheese sticks. And everything she's getting, she's taking and she is launching against the window with the fire of a thousand suns, right? And at the beginning, I'm thinking, hey, okay, let's find something else. After about 19 different things. And you've got to understand, I come from a family that what was put on your plate, you ate. Or you didn't eat it, and you didn't eat it at all, and you went straight to your bedroom. I'm sure that wasn't the case when I was two months, but I don't remember that. I'm going to go with what I know, all right? So after about 15 or 20 different things, I felt this righteous indignation against my child. I've been only gracious to well up in me. And I looked at her and I said with loving aggression, no, that is not what we do with food that's been given to us. She's responding to the word no now. And she looked at me. And it was so sad. She looked at me and I just saw like these tears well up in her eyes. I'm not talking small tears. I'm talking like flood Noah tears. These tears well up in her eyes and she just lost it. And at that point, my wrath was completely assuaged because of the price of those tears, right? This is what propitiation is. Somebody gives you or does something that costs them that then assuages your anger. So then I held my child and I said, I'm sorry. And I said, but eat your food, all right? <laughs> um, why I love Christianity is when it asks the question, of what did God save us from and how did he do it. It talks about the wrath of God and propitiation. And Christianity is the only religion I know, the only one that I know that says that you can't do more, sacrifice more, give more to assuage the wrath, the just, righteous wrath of God. The only way that happens is through God himself because he looked at us and said, you are the problem, not the solution. You can't fix it. In the Old Testament, they had different ways to tell that story. They had a temple and a tabernacle. And what they would do is you would walk through the temple and tabernacle and there was blood everywhere because they sacrificed goats and sheep and birds. And they'd sprinkle blood in different places in the temple. So you were reminded that your misdeeds, that your sin, that your injustice, that your darkness cost something, something its life. And it pointed a picture to what Jesus ultimately did. So you walked in this temple and you were reminded of the smell of blood and the sacrifice and the cost. We don't do well with cost anymore. We do well with grace. And that's a beautiful thing. We need to. But what, but what sacrifice does, what propitiation does, with understanding what God's wrath does, is it makes, it deepens our understanding of the cost that was paid and the grace that was given and the freedom that we have through Jesus, through God saying, I'll sacrifice myself for you. 
It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus did. John Stott said, God gave himself to save us from himself. That's why Jesus says in Mark 10:45, I've come that I might be a ransom for all. When Jesus died, he paid the price of assuaging God's wrath for us. Because God's wrath is good and just against things that are destroy his good world. It's what that does. It deepens how we see the wrath of God. It deepens how we see the sacrifice of Jesus. It's a long quote, but I really like it. John Stott went on to say, it's no help to our understanding to pretend that a loving God would not require an atoning sacrifice because he would not punish sin. This would be to destroy the truth that God is light and to remove all grounds of morality. The nobler biblical way to magnify the love of God by seeing at what tremendous cost the atonement was made and therefore what amazing length, devotion, and scope this love is capable of. It also underlines the fact that only those who've been ransomed by that love know its full extent. That's why the scriptures say that he has reconciled us how by his physical body through death. It's the doctrine of propitiation, that your freedom came at a cost. Don't forget it. It's part of the story of Jesus. And if we tell it right, it gives us gratitude and appreciation for something that we could never do and didn't earn. So he says you're saved from this darkness that you helped did create. He saved through the sacrifice, the sacrifice of God that starts with forgiveness, that leads into propitiation and atonement, and that ultimately rests itself because of those two things with reconciliation and redemption. That's why it says in verse 13 and 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Colossians 1.22, it says, you have been reconciled by his physical body. That word reconciled there literally means, um, in our best translation, it means emancipate to completely set free. It's used to describe redemption. It's used to think about you were a slave and now you're not anymore. If you were a good Jew, you heard that word and immediately went back to Exodus 6. In Exodus 6, just to paint the picture, it's the middle of the Jewish people. There's probably three or five million of them at this point and they are in captivity in Egypt and they've been that way for 400 years. They are building the things that we see in Egypt now and it's backbreaking labor and it's been happening for 400 years. You know the hardest part of systemic oppression? is not recognizing or realizing that it might affect me, but that no matter what I do, I can't get out of it. And my kids can't get out of it, and their kids can't get out of it. This is the darkness they were in, being killed for the glory of Egypt, and God said in Exodus 6, I'm going to come and reconcile, redeem. I'm going to emancipate you from these people. Ten plagues later, they left Egypt, plundering the most powerful nation in the world. They went back and thought of that moment. And said, this is what God wants to do through Jesus. This is what God has done through Jesus. Completely setting us free from the influence of darkness in our lives and in our world. This beautiful picture. And what the text infers there when it says that we're transferred is literally not that God lets us like stop in for like a day of daycare, but he literally transfers our identity. The term there really goes back to the idea of citizenship. That we then are defined by something else. It plays into this idea of kingdom in the Old and New Testament. That the kingdom of anything is the reign and rule of your influence on the people that are in your kingdom. Inside your walls. And in that society, if you, and in the feudal system following, if you ascribe to a certain king or lord, you'd live inside their walls and trust that they'd provide and protect you. And so their ways went. 
kind of hopefully like you in your house with your kids. Good luck, right? You set the rules and they listen because they're members of your kingdom. And so what would happen is literally as you chose who to follow, your kingdom was defined by citizenship to a person, to, to a way of living. So Jesus says, I've changed your citizenship. No longer is your identity or your passport in what was that is breaking the world, but it's in what is redeeming the world. And the best example we see of this is just simply the beauty of adoption. I don't know if you guys have known people that have adopted. I'm in that life stage where it's happening all around me by friends and family. And man, it's glorious. It's glorious for a couple reasons. I've seen different levels of adoption. I've seen adoption when a kid is two weeks old. And what I love about that is this child will never know what he was saved from. Because usually when kids are adopted, it's from a bad place. And this kid will never know, a friend of mine, um, very well-off family, and they adopted this kid from across the country. And this kid is going to grow up with so much privilege and so much, so much he never would have had, so much love he never would have had outside of just the physical stuff. And he'll never know what that cost his parents. And he'll never know what was because this is who he is now. I've seen people adopt kids that are teenagers, and that's harder, but just as beautiful. It takes a while for them to reconcile that this is their new normal, that we don't do things the way that we used to do, but it's the same idea that you're no longer living in what was, you're living in what is, and it redefines what good is. You don't have to worry about these things anymore because you are here. So God's saying, through the sacrifice of Jesus, we have been set free to live into the ways and rhythms of God that he created us to live into in the first place. He said he delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the sons he loved. Arrhenius was a church father and he said, Jesus Christ in his infinite love became what we are to make us what he is. And in this kingdom, we have a promised inheritance. First Peter talks about it. And it says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into all living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. He paints a picture of what will be. He paints a picture of what Christians refer to often as heaven. John Piper defines heaven, and he says, heaven is the sum total of all God has promised us in salvation, this hope of the future. We defined heaven a couple of series ago. It's the place where God is fully known, where his influence is fully felt, and where all things are fully blessed. It goes against the pushing out of God's influence, which leads to darkness, and into embracing the fullness of God's influence in our world. It is the space and place where God's promises are fully kept and actualized and realized. And Peter says, it's beyond what you can see. He uses three words there. He says, it's never going to perish, spoil, or fade. And that to me is remarkable because I don't have a space in my head for things that don't spoil, perish, or fade. Do you guys know what the law of entropy is? The law of entropy is one that we live by every day. And basically, it just means that the amount of usable energy unavailable to do work grows with time. And I know this because I saw a picture two days ago of me in high school, Okay. I know that I look back at my life and, and who I was when I used to like do active things instead of like carry a kid around the world. And I realize I don't have that much mass available to do good things anymore. I do three push-ups. I feel it next Tuesday. All right? The idea of entropy is seen. One of the best examples is a campfire. When first you start, you have all these logs built up. And all that logs is potential energy to do work. And fire is work, right? And so... It's all being able to be used, but over time, the amount of available energy left dissipates log by log. 
We live in a world that entropies. We live in a world that as it gets older and older and older, things only go farther and farther away from the potential in the first place. Now, let me say why I think this is amazing is because when Peter paints a picture of heaven being something that will never spoil, fade, or perish, he's speaking against all the things I know in this world. I know nothing. I know nothing that only gets better with time. We do a little bit for a while, but give it more time, you're going to go downhill. And what Peter says, he paints this picture of a reality that is better than what we can imagine that we don't even have a space for. He's saying, this is the point. You're saved from the darkness through the word of Christ. And what are you saved to? This inheritance that we have in Jesus that is so far beyond what you can understand, what you can see, what you can hope to be good. And so we have conversations on how we define heaven. And look, all I can say is, one, I don't know. But the second thing I can say is it's good because God is there. And so we talk about what is our inheritance. Our literal inheritance is that we have the full influence of God in all of what we do, know, and see. Revelations, when it talks about heaven, talks about that in verse 4. Sorry, verse 3. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. When it talks about transferring us to the kingdom of the son whom he loves, what he's talking about is an inheritance where we fully get the presence of God that we were promised at the very beginning. Where light exists and there is no darkness. It's a beautiful promise. So when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about what will be, what can be, when we talk about our hope and our future, he's saying that this world is broken and here's why. He's saying, I'm fixing it because you can't. And he's saying, this is what it means for you tomorrow as we see more of the light of the gospel expand over the world. And that's how Paul ends it in verse 23. He says, if you remain in the faith established and firm, that if there isn't clausal, that if there is a conditional, it means since. So he's saying, since you remain in the faith established and firm, because he's established at this point in the first 20 some odd verses that he believes that they know Jesus. Saying, since you're established and firm and you haven't been shifting from the hope of the gospel, understand that and may that firmness or pressing inness cause you to press in deeper to the beauty of the gospel and give you more hope. He says, this gospel has also been preached in all creation under heaven. And I, Paul, have become its servant. When it says that it's been preached in all creation under heaven, that's not literal, that's figurative, but in a beautiful way. It's a charge at the end of his prayer towards this church. So it's not literally like everybody on the creation at that point in time knew about Jesus. It's saying there was a decree made, and now I'm a servant of that decree. You get this visual of kind of like a herald that brings good news. So back before all the social media stuff and broadcast news and the internet and all the things, kings would make pronouncements and it would take time for the news of the king's pronouncements to spread to the known world. We've seen these a little bit as we talk about like the ends of wars, for example. You can go back to the Civil War in America or even World War II. There were concentration camps all over Europe and in Germany, and it took about a year and a half to two years to close down those concentration camps one at a time. And different Russian soldiers and U.S. soldiers would go to these camps and say, hey guys, guess what? You're free. Like, this thing's over. This thing's been over for a while. Now go and eat and be and live. And as these people took this message of great news to captives, they'd say, you are free. You don't even know it yet. Go and trust me. Paul says, this is what we get to do. This is the influence of the gospel. What you've been saved from, how you've been saved, and what you've been saved to. 
We now are slaves to that message in a beautiful way. We get to carry that message to the ends of the known world that you and I see. And so the idea of gospel then really is the story of God showing up and saving when he didn't have to. It's God making sense of a world that's broken. It's God rescuing us to our creative purposes. And it's us getting to tell that story in all we do. It's beautifully complex and simple and nuanced and straightforward all at the same time. At Moody, when I would have those conversations, I, I, I'm not good with the really simple. I'm better with the nuance. I like the nuance because I really like to argue. I'm decent at it, my wife would say. Um, I like getting in the weeds and having questions about different words and phrases and clauses and how that impacts all the other things that we see. I like bringing out things that we don't see and making them things that we do. But sometimes we just got to go back to the beginning and say, remember what drew us here in the first place, that God's not done with the world yet and he's redeeming and restoring through Jesus right here, right now. And we get glimpses of one day what that will be. And then Paul says, you get to tell that story like I do with your everyday, (laughs) with your marriage and with your work and how you parent how you treat your friends, you get to tell that story and it's good and beautiful. We get to tell the story of the influence of a gospel on a world that needs it so that people might, as Paul said, be called from darkness into the kingdom of his son, into the light. May we be that church and may we bring that influence in the world that desperately needs it. May we be influenced by the gospel every time we gather. Story that I need to tell myself every single day. Because it's the best one that I know that's ever been told. Let me pray for us. Let's worship. God, I'm so thankful. I'm thankful for the gospel. It sounds big and broad, and it is both of those things. I'm just, (laughs) I'm thankful that we get to go back and kind of revisit our roots and talk about this big picture story of God stepping into blackness and brokenness and fixing it for us. I'm thankful that you allow me to be a part of that story. That you call us to proclaim that story. Not that we did anything, but that you did everything. May that give us joy. May that give us passion to tell people in all parts of the world that don't know they're free yet that they are because God is good. May that inspire us to tell people about Jesus. God, I pray as we think about this text and as we answer some questions when we leave this space, I I just pray that you give us a deepened joy for the gospel. And it might cause us, like Paul said, to be influenced by the power of your ability to rescue. And that people might see Jesus as we live out that message. That the gospel becomes alive and active because we're pressing into the light. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.